Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. You can get ready by opening up your Chumash to second chapter of Shmot, verse 3. Really the opening verses of the life of the person who's going to dominate all the rest of the Torah. Who's that? Who's that? Yeah. We know who he's going to be, but he doesn't yet know who he's going to be. And the text, as it were, doesn't know who he's going to be. The text is just dealing with it as the birth of a baby. But of course, even in the Rashi we read last week, the fact that when he was born, the whole house was filled with light. It was, it was, an, it was, an, it was an omen, a positive omen, according to the Midrash, that this was the birth, even if it's a somewhat Christological image, the birth of someone significant who is going to bring light to the world. Okay, let's jump in. So um, let's see whom whom who would like to read. Marshall, do you want to read? Um, let me actually just review the verse itself, and then Marshall will jump in with the Rashi. So after, in verse 2, we learned that the house was filled with light. Well, the shot was that, that she saw the baby, um, and it was Tov. The baby was Tov. We discussed what Tov could have meant here. She decided to hide the baby three months. We discussed what could the relationship be between her seeing the Tov and the baby and the decision to hide the baby, you know, is is the decision to save your child based on how good the child is. We move past that. And then we got to verse three. She could no longer conceal him. She took for herself a basket made of some kind of a wicker or reed. And she um, clayed it with clay and also with pitch. Um, and she placed the boy into it. She placed it in the reeds along the edge of the river or the edge of the Nile. So that's what the verse was. Um, any lingering comments or questions on the verse before we jump into the Rashi? No? Okay. So, uh, Marshall, if you'll read the Rashi, please. And go nice and slow, because I'm going to pause you a few times. Am I coming through clear since I had difficulty with my microphone the other day? Yes. Okay. Okay, so uh, this is on verse Gimel. Uh, she was no longer able to conceal him. For the Egyptians counted her from the day that he took her back. Right. And so Rashi is now speaking to himself a little bit. He's This, this sentence only makes sense if we accept what Rashi had said in the previous comment, which is that there had been a separation between what the people we're going to learn are named Amram and Yocheved. And there were Miriam chastises Amram... Uh, for saying your decree is worse than Pharaoh's. Pharaoh's decreeing only on the boys. You're decreeing on the boys and the girls uh, by not having relations with your wife. And then he takes her back, and we had this whole romantic image of the fact that she a miracle happened, and she became young and nubile again. He takes her back, and that's what he's. That's what that hechzira means. So, so once he goes back and almost has a second wedding night with his with his wife, then the Egyptians counted. They counted for Manu. That word Manu 
is the same word from which we get minyan, right? Limnot in Hebrew is to count, right? So, um, like monemis parla kochabim lechulam shimot yikra, that God counts all the stars in the sky and gives each of them a name. So, the Egyptians hovered, counting um, from the day that he came back. And how long were they going to be counting ostensibly? Right, so before you read that, so the, 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 the suggestion in the fact that they counted is that they were going to be counting a gestation, right? So right. The, the, the image is that there were these you know, officers of the, of the of Pharaoh's police um, who were stationed at all the places where they imagined uh, Hebrew women had conceived and, they, were, and they, they knew they didn't have to worry about them for nine months. They'd come back in nine months and see if there was a baby. If there was a baby, do the dastardly deed. So they were waiting. But what happened? She tricked them. Okay. And she, however, bore him after, I guess, a period of six months and one day. Very specific, right? So it, it's Rashi's way of saying that, that Moshe was a preemie, right? But it does raise the question... What's the significance of of six months and one day? Remember that what what problem in the verse is he trying to resolve? This question is for anyone. Rick, Rick, right? The three months, right? So we're what the problem in the verse or the or the the, the complexity of the verse is if if she had been committed to saving this boy's life by hiding him, what happened after three months? That suggested that he was no longer either worthy of being hidden or able to be hidden. Lo yachla od hatspino. She could not hide him anymore. Why not? So Rashi's trying to resolve that. And so he has to just, he has to do it in such a way that makes sense of the nine months of gestation on the one hand and the three months of, uh, of Moshe apparently being able to be hid easily. And so he says that, she gave birth early. She gave birth early, essentially six months, six months in one day. And then he says something interesting that reflects, you know, early rabbinic OBGYN um, guesswork, right? Which um, will, will, will not at all surprise you, is not 100% in line with 21st century understanding of medicine. But this was their understanding of, 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 of premature babies. Go ahead. Okay. Right. For one who gives birth in seven months, uh, gives birth, uh, I guess, Liktoa means to cut off. So notice the month is cut off. It's not a complete month. Right. If you look at footnote 37, it brings you to a, a piece of Talmud having nothing to do with the story in Masechet Rosh Hashanah, where there's a discussion that says, that, that a gestation is nine months, but some women give birth early at seven months. But what, what we mean by seven months is six months. That if, if you're, it's almost, it says that if women are giving birth early, they're giving birth really early. Now, I, I have no idea if there's any um, truth to that in modern or ancient childbearing uh, uh, norms, right? I just, I just don't know. I don't know if, 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 if two or 2,000 years ago, if her pregnancy was not going um, all the way to term, was it going to end really much, much earlier rather than it coming to term at, you know, a, a baby being born healthy, but early at, in seven or, eight or seven and a half months? I don't know. But it also works out very um, um, mathematically 
easily right here. Yes, she gave birth early. You might think that giving birth early is seven months. It is seven months, but seven months is really six months, six months in one day. Okay, keep going. And they saw it or after, after her at the end of nine months. Okay, so then in your own words, Marshall, how does this resolve the question in the verse? What happened after what happened after three months of Moshe's of the baby who's about to be called Moshe's life? The baby started making noise. So so for, from our perspective, that might be an easy resolution to the shot. But Ra, Ra, Rashi's circumventing that, right? That's what that's what Renee put in the um in the chat box and Rachel agreed. My own personal um opinion is the opposite, because my children screamed for the first three months of their life and then only then started to become a little bit human and responding to our ability to calm them. But what Rashi is saying is not that after three months, um, they started to make, he started to make noise, but after three months, the police came that she, she bought herself three months. I mean, there's nothing in the Midrash that's saying that she did this willfully, but by having given birth early and miraculously a, a real, real, real preemie in Egypt surviving, she wasn't on the checklist to be, to be investigated for whether or not she gave birth to a boy until three months later. So she had three months of, 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 um, of, of, of investigation-less parenting of this child. Once three months are up, basically her due date. At her due date, that's when uh, Pharaoh's uh, magistrates came around searching for her. Barry? Uh, I don't get it. Uh, how, how is it that... The Egyptian police know when every woman's gestation day begins. The, 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 the Midrash just kind of assumes it. And the Midrash also, remember Rashi connecting um, this comment to his comment in the previous verse, right? There seems to be some kind of a, of a Midrashic understanding of a dramatic return of Yocheved to Amram as if people, people knew it. Right, that, that this woman who was older became young again. He goes back to her. They had a night in their in their hut, and therefore is an indication that this is a hut that needs to be checked nine months from now. Right. So th- this doesn't have to this doesn't have to pass the muster of whether or not it really could have happened for Rashi to kind of use this as a way of, of resolving the problematics in the verse. I mean, and this is true of the whole the whole story. Right. Do we, do we have to? really imagine the exact system by which this pharaoh set up the the guards to go make sure that the baby boys were being thrown into the sea. We can, but we can also kind of hover a little bit over it and say, what 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 is the what what is the value in the way the story is told? What are we supposed to learn about the way this Israelite community um, was resilient and creative against the uh, murderousness of the oppressor? And yes, in order to do that we have to we have to believe somehow that it was known that Yocheved was pregnant. We'll check on her nine months from now. How that could have happened, I don't, I don't know. And, and from the way I read the Midrash, it doesn't really matter, but I understand, I understand the, uh, the question. Barbara? I think from having examined hundreds, maybe thousands of your babies as opposed to normal nine-month babies, that every baby is different. 
when I stick that light in the eye, which is pretty bright, some babies scream, have to be, I need help to hold them down, to keep their eyes open. And other babies are amazing, and they're, they're actually quiet when I do that. So I don't think you can say that a, what, what it is. I think every baby just is different, no matter which age at which they're born. Yeah. Yeah, of course that's true, right? And, and there's no way to generalize any of this. There's no way to generalize None. if None. a woman is giving birth early, how early she's giving birth. There's no way to generalize how quiet or tov a baby is. And, these are, and remember that these stories are archetypes, right? It doesn't mean that they're not, there's no truth to them, but they're, they're archetypes and the midrash working intentionally to make it even more archetypal. So the, mid, the rabbis are reading a text, which by the time they're reading it, is already a, like a primal core text that has become an archetype. And the rabbis are, I think, consciously, some would say unconsciously, are trying to make it yet more archetypal, more grand, more epic, more, um, like, it's interesting, more, both more and less mythological at the same time. Less mythological in the sense of trying to reify it. Make it more, um, more um, like accessible because some of the stories in the, in the Torah are kind of are, are vague and leaving out details, but more mythological because they're trying to have the text become the pantheon of our of our storyline, right? And in order to do that, you have to create larger categories and generalizations. Uh, Barbara, yes. The thing is that. Once a baby reaches the seventh month of gestation, the fetus, they're more likely to survive to, to full term and, to, and to, to live a long life than a baby born in the sixth month or before. Nowadays, we have a lot of babies that are born in the fifth and sixth month that need desperate measures to keep them alive. But seven-month babies, they still often need desperate measures to keep them alive. Yeah. But they're a little bit more survivable. The lungs are a little bit better, and they're less likely to to, to to develop respiratory distress. So maybe that's something that that Rashi knew that younger babies, six month fetus, more likely not to survive, and seven months fetuses more likely to survive. He may have yeah. been thinking that, which makes his birth yet more um, um, miraculous, right? So yes. That's right. Of the conception, because the conception only happened because Miriam chastised and only happened because she somehow became more young and beautiful. And not only that, a baby that under no circumstances, under even non um, pharaonic decree circumstances, had no chance of surviving, first survived being born at six months. And, that, and only then to kind of live into the moment that was normatively dangerous for him, which is that people were out to right. murder him. Right. Correct. And, and listen, there is something. I would say both obviously pre-Christological about it in the text itself, and as the rabbis are creating the Midrash material around the same time that, the, that Jesus be, is being rendered by the text into Christ, something very um, evocative about a baby being born in, their, in, their, in miraculous conditions and, and as a savior, right? Moshe is born as a savior, born not in the manger, but born in a, in a situation that he should have he should have not survived either of the two conditions to become a savior. Rick and then, Le- and then Larry Diane. Hi, um, just 
uh, to try to explain how the Egyptians might know, to give you a little perspective. In the olden days, in my profession, an insurance agent would go door to door to pick up premiums from people. Thank God I didn't ever have to do that. But you would know all your clients. You know where they live. You go to their door. You knock on the door, and you get the money. So um, in Rashi's time, the Crusades and all that, where the Jews are in ghettos and 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 everybody, it, it's small communities, and everybody knows everybody's business. Um, I think um, that's his mindset. I'm just guessing that the Egyptians would be able to do that with their work crews. That they they would know who's having kids and who's who's where so just an idea yeah yeah thanks for that rick it's like because we we, we've said a version of the following comment literally hundreds of times in this class but it bears repeating because i i sometimes have to repeat it to myself because we are reading this text both as identified religious observant caring jews who are trying to extract religious meaning from these texts and as modern history reading science believing uh, American humans, right? We, we, we both want to figure out like as precisely as possible, what's the most likely historical explanation for how something could have been. And, and we also don't because we we're comfortable with it staying in the realm of mythology, right? There's a little bit of like, like not that we, I think our religious life cannot tolerate willful ignorance, I think in some parts of the religious community, they, they embrace willful ignorance, but we don't, we don't want to be, we, we don't want to like intentionally not know something. We don't want to be a la 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 la, but we are, but we are processing it on many, on many labels simultaneously. And those levels, which are contradictory to one another. Right. So like, okay, I'll, I'll leave it there. Uh, Larry, Diane. And then Judy. Okay, well, I'm going to say it. Diane was the one that first pointed this out. I mean, um, she didn't say what I'm going to say first, which is I think we're going down a rabbit hole, um, but we often do. And I often wonder if some of these aren't offhand um, speculations by Rashi, which over the years we've made into something, something more. But I think you all know my own view about how Rashi's, how, how we got to, got to the Rashi. Cheskuni sort of takes us in a different direction, and he understands completely what Rashi has said. Um, but he goes into another explanation, which apparently is also from the same page in Sota that we've been talking about all along, that in fact, she was already pregnant three months when she remarried. Um, so there's where you get the three months beforehand. Mm. Then he points out that at the end of the first Cheskuni, he says that Moses was born three months after Yodchavit had been remarried. So both premature and even earlier than we would have thought from Rashi. Anybody else got another idea? <laughs> Larry, I can't wait for your first article on the Chizkuni. And I love how much you love the Chizkuni. Um, so uh, I've been thinking when we finish the entire Torah with Rashi, which commentary we should do next. In about 2071, um, maybe he's So stick around. <laughs> uh, Judy Vakasha. Okay, um, I love what you said, Rabbi, about looking at it as both a, um, 
uh, from the religious perspective, the kind of the macro structure of what we're doing. Um, and isn't that emblematic of our tradition to be able to hold the deep, the spiritual meaning that's unpacking the grammar to see, like, for example, why there's a repetition of a verb in two different forms, back to back, lends emphasis, or what could it be referring to versus the, like, the historical criticism. And, and I think that the rabbis, the rabbis in the Talmud were able to hold both perspectives. So it really comes down to a matter of how much we can hold in our brains before we get overwhelmed with cognitive dissonance. Mm. But to just kind of hold, yes, there's this, and there's also this, as Rick was mentioning, what could have been happening during Egypt in that time to rationalize this verse. So I think it's really cool because ultimately we're expanding our brains to be able to hold both. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll just let that sit there because I can't improve upon it. But I think that's wonderfully said, Judy. What was um, that? I said I'm just going to let that comment uh, stand there because I, I, there's nothing I can okay. improve upon that, which is not to suggest that when I speak after you speak, anyone, I'm trying to improve upon what you said. I'm just trying to say that <laughs> um, uh, what, what Judy said is spot on. Okay. Um, so I think we're mid, we're mid Rashi. So, um, Rashi's finished his comments on that part of the verse, right? So he's, at least his own satisfaction, resolved this notion of the three months, right? Which we all agreed when we read the first time was an interestingly precise amount of time, right? Well, um, and, I, and, I, and, and then go back to the first thing that Renee wrote in the, um, um, in the chat, even though my own personal experience as a parent is that it's not the case, it very well could be that the shot is it's, it's when, a, when a baby is, is 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 uh, is doing mostly sleeping and nursing. It might be easier to hide it from the authorities. Um, whenever I read these, um, uh, this is this is going to be a um, um, like a strange di- di- diversion. Whenever I read this midrash, I think of a terrible scene, um, which I'm sure happened many many times over. Dude, there was a movie in the 1980s about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising called The Wall. I think I can't remember if it was a made-for-TV movie. I saw it on TV, but I don't know if it was a made-for-TV movie or if it was um, uh, a movie that was written and, and ended up in the screens. At one point, I was looking for it later on in life, and the only thing I came up with was Pink Floyd's The Wall, and this was not Pink Floyd's The Wall, but this was the wall that essentially kept the Jews inside the Warsaw Ghetto. And there was, I, I saw this as a young child, and it really burned into my brain, as things do when you're young. Um, where the the last remnants of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising are fleeing uh, under the sewers. And there's some scene, I can, I can picture everything about the scene, although I have not seen the scene since probably 1981 um, or 82. And the last group of fighters is there, and they're um, trying to emerge from the sewers, and one of them has a baby, and the baby's crying. It's an infant. And there are nine or ten lives at stake. And the Nazis are all around and the baby's crying. And you can, you can imagine the, the pathos of the scene. And you can, only, you can even imagine where I'm going with the description. At some point, the mother's trying to, um, to calm the baby and is not successful. And one of the other people there says, allow me. And he takes the baby and he walks through the muck 
down down one of the channels a couple of hundred couple of feet and comes back and the baby's quiet and the reason why the baby's quiet is because he's killed the baby and the reason why he's killed the baby is to is to save the lives of the nine people who are trying to escape in the tunnels and it was one of the first times in my young life that I you know really understood the 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 incalculable uh, trauma and the tragedy of, of uh, I guess if you want to generalize it anybody fleeing um, a murderous society, but particularly the Jewish people in the Shoah, right? That the that the the symbol of 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 a community being reborn, with a baby being reborn, um, could actually be the thing that endangers um, endangers you because babies make noise, and babies make noise when you don't want them to make noise. And I was wondered when when I so that was in my mind in the 1980s when I when I saw that as a young child. When I came across this um, this Rashi. Um, and this text, I wondered if, if there was a conscious or unconscious connection between the way that scene was written out and some of this material, or is it just a natural scene to be written out? Because that's probably what happened many times over. Um, okay. Um, let's go forward, Marshall. I don't think there are any hands up. So let's read, let's read what he says next. Um, the next interesting or challenging word in the verse is this word, gome. Gomer, gemi ilshon mishnah. That the word gomer is the mishnaic term gemi, which uh, means, um, uh, I guess here it is translated as paper read. Uvalaz yunku, yunk. And here's explanation for davar rach. It is a a soft substance. For who were made bifne rach. And it, I guess it offers resistance to something which is both soft, and again, something which may be hard. Right. So when I've looked at English renderings of this Rashi to try to see how English turns this old French into an English letter thing, it's often written out as J-O-N-C, Jonk. I do not know nearly enough French to know what Jonk means, but I assume that Jonk means reads, because that's how this is often understood, or wicker. Right, and I love the way he describes it here. So, so it, it, it's it's a the way I would read rach here is almost like pliable, as opposed to soft. It's a pliable thing, I guess soft also that that sustains itself both in the presence of something soft, meaning it doesn't it doesn't um, it doesn't melt away, it doesn't just disappear. It's it's hard enough to 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 sustain. As, um, it's in its contact with, with soft and wet things and yet soft enough to sustain its contact with hard things. That's actually one of the interesting things about wicker, right? Wicker, uh, and why it's a, a good flotation device. Uh, Larry, Bakasha or Larry, Diane. So I'm assuming that, um, the modern Hebrew word gumi for rubber band comes either from Rashi or from, uh, Gama, what, uh, Gome. Gome, in this verse. Uh, that's interesting, Gumi. Um, <laughs> I don't, is there a real, is there a, um, kind of taxonomic relationship between rubber and reed? Not that, it, not that there needs to be in order for that to be true, but is it's flexible and I mean, it, it flexible and, um, Offers resistance to pressure. I mean, it's it it fits the definition perfectly. Yeah, 
right. might even jump into English, right? The like to, something which is gummy, right? Right. Which is gum, like from a gum tree, I think. So it all yeah. may be related. Well, how about a rubber tree plant? Whoops! There goes hmm. another rubber tree. Um, there's gamish too. It's sort of all clunked up together. There's you know. Like gamish, when you add the shin to the root, gimel mem shin, it becomes flexible, right? So that that is that that is related in meaning. I'm not I'm not sure if it's related etymologically, right? Sometimes they they are they're not. Um, and um, you've got Rene Junko refers to a bird that lives amongst marsh rushes. Interesting. Meaning that's what that's what your French dictionary says, Rene. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Um, uh, mostly Rashi here is just defining a term so that um, you have an m- image in your mind of the of, of what this arc was built out of. Um, I see Barry, Kathy's hand, then then uh, Rebecca Leonard, and then Matt. Barry, Raksha? Um, I'm thinking papyrus. Uh, papyrus um, has the um, structural uh, this characteristic of, of being porous. It's rather hollow. Its its uh, surface is um, shiny and, and smooth, so it's it's relatively um, resistant to to wet uh, and scrunches if you squeeze it, uh, and it's also hard. And so it it has all those characteristics. Uh, I think they didn't have gum trees in in Egypt. I, um, we're not we don't have Toba here to verify what I said, but I don't think uh, gum trees would be um, uh, natural at that time in Egypt, but papyrus was and it has these characteristics. Yeah, this is the nice thing about Toba's not being here is that we can all all of us can say anything we want today and no one will be able to t- tell us if we're right or wrong. <laughs> I, I think I think it's I think it's papyrus. Uh, which has all the characteristics that we're describing here. Okay, great. Uh, Rebecca Leonard, and then um, uh, someone else. Uh, then Matt, I think. Not Matt. You're done. You don't want to say anything. Okay, Rebecca Leonard, Raksha. Hi. Uh, yeah, my dictionary says that uh, Gami and and uh, Gome are uh, papyrus. Well done, Barry. You didn't even, you didn't even need you didn't even need Tova here to uh, to to verify that. Now, the word gumi, on the other hand, yes. is a foreign word, and it actually comes from gumi, from Latin, but that comes from Greek, which in turn comes from Egyptian. So, so who knows? <laughs> um, I'm going to pause for a second and welcome, I, I'm not sure he's going to show his, his, uh, his video, but my dear friend and chavruta and teacher, Rabbi David Ingber, who is the founder of Romamu in New York, uh, saw the class on Facebook and decided he wanted to pop in and say hello. So you might, you'll see a picture of him uh, in the gallery of, of with him with two of his kids. So welcome, Reb Ingber. It's a, it's an honor to have you uh, with us as we study from Rashi. Just wanted, I just wanted to hear your voice and I wanted to hear your teaching and your, and your students. And uh, <laughs> this is us here. We're just saying hello. And uh, we're going to close it. Just listen. Is that okay? <laughs> Vakasha, I love you, my friend. Okay, um, Matt. I oh, know, Matt, you didn't want to speak anymore. So was anyone's hands up? Um, they, sure, they sure have gum trees in Sudan that was Upper Egypt one time. Okay, so we'll, we'll leave it as some combination of papyrus reed with a little bit of, of, um, of, uh, of 
of, of gum. Okay. Um, let's go to the next one. Speaking of, of Rashi amplification of verses that turn this um, rather mundane moment of a human being coming into the world, mundane because it happens all the time, into something that is presaging the remarkable life that this man's going to live. Okay. Uh, so uh, you're back on Marshal Bachemar Uvazafet. Okay, so Bachemar Uvazafet. Here I'm going to use Robert Alter's translation of those. Of Bachemar is with resin, Uvazafet with pitch. Zefet mi bachutz, so a pitch on the outside. Betit mi bifnim. And teat is um, like some kind of mortar or some kind of mud in the inside. Right. Now, pause one second before we read the next part of the Rashi, and, and particularly for those who haven't read ahead, what would you, given what you know about either of these materials, what are the main distinctions between clay, mud on the one hand, and pitch, tar on the other hand, particularly as it comes to where, you, where, where you'd want it to be? Marshall? Well, pitch, I think, is oftentimes very smelly, and mud does not give off any kind of smell. Right. Some of us are living right now within olfactory um, uh, distance of the tar pits, right? That, that, those t- La Brea, I think, by the way, in Spanish, La Brea mean tar pits. Isn't La Brea tar pits like a redundancy? Yes. Like when I was at Camp Ramon in the 1980s, we had Yom Sport Day <laughs> because uh, they, didn't, they, didn't, they, didn't, uh, they, they didn't figure out that the Yom was mentioned twice. So Zephet is understood to be that black, sticky tar. We mentioned it. Sometimes you, you know, on certain beaches, it's in the water and you come out of the water and it's on your feet, right? It's a very good caulker, right? If, you get, if, it, if, it, if you're using that as a way of plugging up a hole, it's probably going to stop the water from coming through, is resistant to the water, but it's not particularly present. Whereas uh, mortar and clay and chemar also will harden in between cracks and, and prevent things from coming through. But, but, but mostly not particularly smelly. Barry, you're a potter amongst us, so what do you think? Well, uh, 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 clay uh, uh, will dissolve in water. Uh, it's not waterproof. The tar is waterproof. Um, but you don't want the tar on your feet, like you said. So the, the, the clay would separate uh, the body uh, from the tar. Great, great. Now, with that in mind, read the, the where, where Rashi goes next, uh, Marshall. Okay. Kadesh lo yariach oto. Tzadik, Reach Ra shall in order that the uh, this Tzadik, this righteous boy, I guess, would not smell it a bad smell of pitch. So, in your own words, what's Rachi's explanation for why the Torah goes to lengths, and I mean lengths in quotation marks, but telling us specifically not not just that he was in a wicker basket and he was waterproof, but specifically it didn't just have chemar, it had zephet, or it didn't just have zephet, it had chemar. Right? What Rashi is responding to is the somewhat unnecessary specificity of the, of the materials used to build this. So in your own answer, Marshall, or anyone else's hand is up, what's the answer in your own words? Larry, Diane? What's the answer? I don't know if that's the question you're answering, but... No, that's not the question I was answering. Well, answer that question first. Repeat the question. What's Rashi saying? Right? If the problem is... No, what? He, yeah. He, he, didn't want, he didn't want Moses to be 
offended by the smell. Right. The, the, the savior of the Jewish people should not be saved in a, in a, in a, in a stinky little basket, right? This, 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 this was, this, well, if there was any zephyr to be found, it was nowhere near the baby. There was chemar in between him and the zephet, and there was goma in between him. The zephet was just on the outside to make sure he wouldn't drown. God forbid, uh, little baby Moses, who produced, I'm sure, many smelly things many times a day, did not have to deal with the smelliness of the zephet. That's, so, that's what the Midrash is saying. Larry, so, go ahead. So my, my question and comment, it's actually a comment, is how much more Rashi would actually be offended if he knew what I think this really is referring to. So, first of all, pitch and tar and bitumen obviously are coming from um, things like oil. So, it's not that common in Egypt. And in fact, the way in which Egyptians, Egypt is an African country, the way in which um, Africans make their huts or make their um, mortar is the way that they do throughout Africa and lots of other places in the world where you don't have something like bitumen. They, bitumen? they mix the clay and the dirt with manure. Mix it with manure, and that's how you make, that's how you, how you put things around, and make your hut, to, you make your bricks, and you put the bricks together that way. And it could well be, though I have no proof that Zevit could possibly be that or Zavat could possibly be that, that in fact it was a, a manure-based sort of resin that was placed around the reeds, because that's exactly how you would build a hut, in order to make this floating ark. And he wouldn't, if he knew that it was manure, how, the, how much more would Rashi have been offended at the um, nation? What is bitumen? Bitumen is the lowest, when you, when you, when you refine oil, okay, and the top layer is the jet fuel, and the bottom layer, I can't remember if the bottom layer is either bitumen or bunker fuel, one of the two. It just goes to the bottom. It's the heaviest, goopiest, thickest part of, uh, of what is oil. And it sometimes seeps through the ground. Why it would rise, I don't know. I can't explain that. So what people call tar or pitch is often a form of bitumen. I see. Interesting. You know, the, the people who are gathered here every week to study Torah have such a beautiful and wide array of backgrounds, backgrounds and expertises that, on the one hand, R- Rashi knew a billion times more about the tradition than we'll ever know combined. But he couldn't possibly have fathomed the, um, you know, the, the, the expertises in the foci and the geographic and historical and botanical and, and, and materiological um, knowledges that help us really make sense of this. I'm so appreciative when people bring in from their, uh, their real knowledge of the way the world actually is. It, it takes nothing away from Rashi's beautiful, spiritual guesswork, right? But it also helps us try to understand things as they really were. So thank you for that, Larry. Uh, Joel and then Rebecca Leonard. I just want to point out the parallel between the Moses story and the Joseph story that Joseph also, in order to save his people, he had to be removed from his family and sent to some powerful person in Egypt. And in Joseph's vessel that he was taken to Egypt in was the Midianites. And they mentioned that the Midianites were selling perfume and stuff. And 
Rashi said the reason that they were selling perfume was so he wouldn't have to have bad smells on his way to Egypt. So very similar. So it's so wonderful to be reminded of that, of that, of that Moshe Yosef association. Uh, Rebecca Leonard. Um, if we look back in the story of uh, Noah's Ark in Brashit, verse six, uh, chapter six, verse 14, the Ark also, um, Noah was instructed to use pitch, but Rashi comments that uh, the Ark, there was pitch inside as well as outside because the waters were going to be rough and rapid. So it was needed in both cases, unlike the um, uh, the ark or cradle that Moses was placed in where the water was not going to be rapid and such. So it was okay to just have the pitch on the outside. Right. And there's so much being um, taught here about the, the, the rabbis imagining the beginnings of the life of the person who's going to be their savior. Right. It was as it, it, the, the, the references back to Yosef and to the Noah story that this was not a tumultuous stormy water, but a gentle stream. It only, therefore it could only tell only needed Zephyr on the outside. Therefore Moshe didn't have to be troubled by, by that smell. And even as his life is imperiled, he's somehow in, in, in the lap of luxury, right? Like it's, it's, it's he's, he's so comfortably um, nestled into this beautiful vessel, um, which is like the appropriate way for the savior of Israel to begin his life as it were. Great. Okay. Um, let's keep going. Rashi's got one more comment on this verse. So Marshall, you're still up. Okay. Vatarsem basuf, and he placed him in the suf. Uh, who is shown agam. Such is the la- language of agam. And I guess agam can mean like uh, uh, a pool or, or a lake. Right, so here, here's where Rashi's use of Hebrew words in his generation to make sense of Hebrew words in the Torah rubs up against our inherited use of Hebrew a thousand years later. So Rashi's saying to you, to you, the reader, hey, you reader in 11th century France who might not really understand the word suf, even though you've seen it several times and you're going to see it in the Torah, think of it as the word agam. I believe, this is now Adam Clickfield, I believe that when Rashi uses the word agam, he doesn't think what we think when we hear the word agam, which is either amazing um, artist with a fountain in Tel Aviv, haha, or um, a lake or a pond, but a swamp, kind of a marshy, a marshy swamp, right? Imagine a marshy swamp that is, that is uh, too, too wet to really walk in with normal shoes, but also has <laughs> reeds everywhere, right? That's what I believe... Um, medieval Hebrew thought of as the word agam, and he gives us this word in French. Keep going. Uh, Rosel Belaz. Right. I think it's sometimes spelled in the English translation of Rashi as R O S E I L, Rosel. Again, I don't know what that word means. Do we have any French speakers today or here? I don't remember if any of us speak French. Um, okay, so hold on one second, then we'll get to Joel and to Barry. Um, and then he and then he gives one more phrase and there's and and I believe that the the, the 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 particular example he gives is playing two roles simultaneously. So go ahead, Bidomelo. Uh Bidomelo Kane Vesuf Kamelu. And similar to it is so I'm gonna again use uh, Alter's translation. Kane is rush, 
Varsuf, a reed thicket, will wither. Right. So he points us to a verse in Isaiah, which I will tell you, like when Rashi points us to a verse that tells what a word means, he's usually pointing us to a verse where it's more obvious what the word means there. There's nothing specifically more obvious about what suf means in that verse than it is in ours, except that it distinguishes between suf and kane and kane is a reed. So the only thing that that verse really does is tell us if you thought the word uh, suf itself means reed, it doesn't because in this verse in Isaiah, it's kane vasuf to suggest that kane reed and whatever suf is will, will wither. But I think there's a secondary reason why he's giving this verse. I'm not suggesting anyone has comprehensive knowledge of the book of Isaiah, but in the 19th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah is prophesying about the the downfall and the deterioration of what kingdom? Guess? Anyone? What's that? Probably Egypt. Egypt! Right, so Rashi takes a verse from the prophecy of Isaiah which uses the word suf, which kind of helps define the word, but not really, because it, 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 it's not like it's a verse that describes suf. It just differentiates suf from kaneh, but it's talking about the downfall of Egypt. And I love the fact that it cannot be a coincidence that Rashi, in trying to explain the matrix in which the person who is going to be the savior of Israel and the defeater of Egypt is protected, quotes a verse with Isaiah you know, many, many hundreds of years later, prophesying against that very Egypt or the inheritors of that Egypt. Um, Marshall, so you have the floor, we'll go you and then Joel and then Barry and then Rick. Okay, so I think also the use of the word soup here is really a foreshadowing of the yam soup. So in effect, Moses is being put into the soup here as a baby and he will lead the people through the yam soup. Absolutely, right? On a pshat level, we don't even need Rashi for that. On a pshat level, the birth of the people of Israel at the hands of the Savior happens in the same way that the, that the, that the, savior, the saving of the Savior happens, right? And we've talked before about how Yam Suf, and we'll get there eventually, is a very birth-like image, right? And Suf is the connecting um, uh, material there. Okay, Joel, Barry, Rick. Go ahead, Joel. Can't hear you yet. Yeah, I was just wondering whether the word agam comes from the word gomer. They both relate to reeds. Yeah, could be. I uh, hadn't thought about that. Um, we, we do sometimes see two-letter roots going forward and backward and creating like a family of roots. Especially with uh, Phenolif. Phenolif is very... Right, right. Uh, I'd love it if Leonard has any kind of answer to that, but I, off the top of my head, I, I had not made that connection. Um, Rebecca, Leonard, you want to answer that and then we'll get to Barry? Yes. Uh, so Agam is defined as a lake or a pool or a pond or reeds. <laughs> and interestingly, in Arabic, there is a cognate, ma'ajim, which is a pool full of reeds. Oh, got it. Great. Um, well done, Joel. Thank you, Leonard. Uh, Barry. Vakasha. Yeah, uh, well, two things going, just touching on reeds. Uh, papyrus in its natural state are reeds. So th- there's a lot of them there yeah, that she could make the papyrus uh, uh, basket from. 
Um, but, but what I wanted to focus on is her putting the baby in the river. I, when she realizes, Yovet realizes she can't keep the baby any longer, she, she builds this thing. She hasn't been instructed to build it like uh, um, um, building of the ark, but she, she does so, and then she, she puts it in the river. Uh, she she's, has some p- prophetic belief that it will be okay that that her that this um this this special light that has been given to her uh, will 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 be saved will be good yeah by yeah. by doing this i mean wh- yeah. what is the mother doing putting her baby in the river she has some belief yeah. i think it's very powerful if i toss him she put this is very powerful yeah, I'm glad you raised that very focusing, I think, properly as the, because Rashi's kind of pointing us in that direction to the baby and to the and to the person the baby's gonna be coming, and almost like the prophetic way in which the the baby's being saved imagines his being the savior. But the agency of the mother is really significant here, right? Not there's no Vayomer Adonai El Yochevet, right? Mm-hmm. God said to the mother of this baby, this is what you should do. She just does it. She just does it. Wonderful. Um, Matt, thank you for that comment that in modern French, rosé um, is, re- is reed, so not, not the swamp, but the reed itself, and jonc is rushes. Great. Helpful. Uh, Rick, and then Diane Larry. Yeah, hi. Um, I just realized that uh, I always thought that Moses is floating down the Nile for, you know, a few yards, uh, even longer, but no, he's just sitting there in the reeds at the side of the river, and they put him there because looking ahead, that's where exactly the daughter of Pharaoh is going to go bathe. So um, he, he wasn't floating down the river for a long time. He's just sitting there in the basket is what I think it, it, it reads. Right, and think of the fact that if it's a marsh with reeds, it's not a Nile, Right. Right. Um, let's say it this way. If you, if you asked like a 11 year old fresh off of religious school, you know, where was most of Moshe found? He would, they would say in the Nile river, right? The Nile river is a, is it's, it's like the Mississippi, right? But the, but here imagine water, but a marshy water where there are reeds, it's going to actually prevent flowing. It's going to allow for being a, a, a hiding, right? Like a, a, only a slow moving of anything, uh, of the basket, but kind of hiding within the reeds, right? Which is very different than flowing down, you know, over Niagara Falls. Um, Diane, Larry. By the way, Rick, I want to say that the way that you're set up there looks like you're like a disc jockey in Hawaii or something. I love it. Like, so, like with, with the microphone and that thing, it looks like, and you know, you're, you're doing the morning show in the, in, in, from Kona. There's something about that setup that looks like you're on vacation in, the, in Polynesia. So I hope it's as fun as it looks. Uh, Diane and Larry. Well, first of all, we concur with your observation about Rick. We thought we, I thought that when I first saw <laughs> So this, this comment, I don't know how to put it. It's, it's not a digression. It has nothing to do with the text. It has to do with our language. So several times you and others have made a reference that to me sounds like um, fingernails along a chalkboard. It just grates me. Okay. Is we're referring to Moses as the Savior. I don't think we ever, ever talk about Moses or Joseph or anybody 
as the savior. savior. This is a theological question beyond my pay grade, but every time we use that term, it just, it's like, it, it rattles my ears. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned it because, you know, you ever hear yourself start to say something and you're wondering how a particular word got into your brain? Because I also don't ever refer to Moshe as the savior. I think I've, I've, I'm, if I'm being honest, I think I'm uncon- unconsciously impacted by something that Rashi wrote in the scene where he's trying to explain how the his Pharaoh's magicians got half of half of this right, but not all of it right. And they got a prophecy that Moshian shall Yisrael, that the savior of Israel was born today. It was back on the Rashi. Um, yeah, so in, in, the, in, in Rashi, it chap, the last verse of the previous chapter, this is when Rashi is trying to explain, did, did Pharaoh really make this decree that all boys, not just Israelite boys, be thrown into the water? L'cholamo, af alehem gazar, even upon them he decreed. Yom shenolad Moshe, on the day that Moshe was born, amrulo itztagninav, his magician said to him, or his pro- his prophet said to him, Hayom nolad Moshian, today their Savior was born. And I think, frankly, unconsciously, not because I, I've changed my, my theology, I've been using that image today and, and last week because because that language influenced me. But I'm not trying to make any statement. I, 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 have, I have the same fingernails on the blackboard reaction to myself. <laughs> Uh, so, so, so don't read too much into it, but I think that I'm just impacted by that phrase, Moshian. You're right. We don't think of Moses as savior. We think of him as agent of the savior, right? Uh, we don't think of him as, uh, as, as demigod. We think of him as extraordinarily human and flawed and broken and extraordinarily close to the Holy one. So I, I appreciate your pointing that out. Um, all right. Did we finish Arashi? Woo. Okay. So, uh, let's start with the next verse. Um, who hasn't spoken today? Who sh- we should uh, speak? Carol, do you want to read Vatitatsav? Uh, can I just? No, go ahead, Matt. One, one, one the, the word Moshiach is at the song we sing at the Hanukkah. Makabim Moshiach Ufoder. Yes. That's also access to lowercase s savior. One, some, someone who saved us from destruction, but not right. these. Right, and you, you, listen, Yehoshua, right, is Joshua, is 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 named the one who who will will bring Savior. I guess I like that lowercase s, right? It's you. One can be a, one can help a rescue without being the divine rescuer. Right. Uh, yeah. Question: Where in liturgy the verb Lahoshia is applied not only to God? I got to think more about that. Um, all right, Carol Vakasha, if you're willing to. Um, okay, a short, chunky verse that Rashi is quiet on, which means that we can focus really just on the words themselves. What do you yes, I, I assume it means she was standing, but I don't know how to unpack that. I don't know the root of Tatsav. Right, so it's either, depending on which dictionary you look in, some people will, will name the root as yud, tzadi, bet, like in modern Hebrew, yatsiv, is something very stable. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you might know it from the parsha at the end of Zarim, Nitzavim, Atem Nitzavim Kulchem Hayom. You're all standing here, but since it's an intensive version of standing, the commentaries go crazy. Why does God say Atem Nitzavim and not Atem Omdim? So some people would also write this root as Nun Tzadi Bet, but most would write it as Yud Tzadi Bet. And Vatet Atzav, um, I would love Vera's thoughts on this. It looks to me like a, like, like a Nifal, a, no. a third person, not Nifal, so, so no. correct me. It, it's Hitpael, Binyan Hitpael, and it should have been, had it been according to the rule of the grammar, should have been Vatityatsev. Vatityatsev. So, Putting it in a hit pile means kind of reflexive that she stood there by herself, but though it doesn't say by herself, it says that she stood there with her ama, and that's another story. But Achoto is Miriam, right? So yes. Miriam stood there maybe by herself without any other family member, as a protection to yeah. know she didn't stand close by. She had like a little hiding place, maybe from far, Merachok from far. Ledea is a very old Shemapoal infinitive of the verb to know and should have been by the rule Ladaat. But we have verbs like this that are payud like le le da, la, le de a. So that means to know. Right. So right. she stood there, the verb yatsav, his sister Miriam stood there from distance, from far to know, maya sebo, what will be done to him. Right. So, so, Thank you for that, Vered. And your your correction of my guess of Nifal is borne out by Uncleus, because if you see how Uncleus translates it, he translates into what would call, be called the et pael in Aramaic, same thing as a hit pael, right. but clearly reflexive using a different shoresh, the it atadat, which is clearly in the, in the, in the reflexive, right? So that opens up a lot of interesting questions is w- w- what is the power of the reflexiveness of this verb? Does it suggest aloneness? Does it suggest something that she was doing to herself? What's the difference between to to stand and to stand oneself, right? Um, and interestingly, if you look at um, Ibn Ezra, who is the, of all the people on the page, the one who's most focused on precision of grammar, uh, bottom right on our page, Ibn Ezra HaKatsar, on the word Batetatsav, Milazara, strange word, he says. Ukfar his kirab bal hadikduk, and he makes reference to a medieval grammar book, and without explaining it, saying, and 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 this this guy in this grammar book has already dealt with it. So he doesn't he Ibn Ezra doesn't deal with it. He just says, if you think it's a strange word, it is a strange word. I'm not going to deal with it, but someone else did. Hmm. Okay, let's go back to Carol for a second, and then to Rick, because Carol, um, we kind of stole your 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 translation thunder. Anything else you want to? you want to add as you're working through what the words mean in the verse? Um, no, I think Varid covered it. Okay. <laughs> so good. So she stood herself. She betook herself to the side from a distance. 
Lidea, that weird infinitive, right? Even those of us who know it's a little bit of Hebrew know that the impact of here of the of the word is infinitive, but the, the look doesn't look it. Ma ye aselo, that's nifal. What would happen to him? Okay. Now I'm going to predict because I'm a prophet that Rick is going to talk about the zakev gadol on Lidea. Let's see if I'm right. Yeah, I was I was going to bring that up. Uh, it's the highlight of the verse. But um, I don't know uh, much more to do with it. I looked at the next Zakef Gadol, and there's three of them, but it, it doesn't really connect. But what I wanted to say was uh, kudos to Miriam, because like we're, like we're saying that um, God didn't tell Yocheved to put the baby in the basket. The mother didn't, Yocheved didn't tell Miriam, hey, go stand over here. She stands herself, so she's trying to save her brother all by herself, and, and I like that a lot. Yeah, and I remember something I said, I don't remember, two or three weeks ago, that the Talmud, Masechah Psachim, and several other places uses these narratives to explain why even women in Talmudic law, who are normally exempt from time-bound positive mitzvot, are obligated to the four cups of wine on Pesach, right? Because the women were as involved in the miracle of the, of the, of the redemption of, of Israel and the Exodus as men were. And what's the proof text? Yocheved and Miriam, Miriam chastising her father, getting him to be uh, back with his mother. And this kind of um, not pushed by God to do so, but protecting the person who would eventually um, lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And because women were involved in that in that um, salvation story, there's that word again, according to the Talmud and according to the Tosafot's commentary in the Talmud, they too are obligated to drink the four cups of wine, even though drinking the four cups of wine is a positive time-bound mitzvah, and generally, traditionally speaking, women would be exempt from it. Um, yeah, I, the one more, one note, because you didn't expand on it, Rick, and then we'll hear Rebecca Leonard, and we'll end the class, that gadol, that zakef gadol, I learned it as a gadol, simple call it a zakef gadol, in the middle of that verse, is the only thing in this short little verse that is at all musically non-mundane. Depending on how you do it. So maybe when we come back next week, we can linger on what is, what is, what, what, what meanings the word Lidea are pregnant with such that the music is, is, is built up the way because it didn't have to be. Uh, Rebecca Leonard and then Diane Larry, and then we'll call it a class. Go ahead. Okay. I, I just wanted a, the difference between the Natsav and the Yatsav. Yeah. So Natsav is to is to stand up, whereas Yatsav is to station oneself or to take one stand. This so. one has to be Yatsav and not Natsav because Yud Tzadi Bet has a Hitpa'el form and the Nun Tzadi Bet does not. Fascinating. Thank you for that. I would not have been able to make that, that fine distinction. Thank you. Diane Larry. So I can't find any commentators that say anything about Ledea. And I and Rick, Rick, I knew he was going to say something as well. But to me, it's like clear. I don't understand why no one else is saying this. She didn't want to know what would happen to him only in the Nile, but so that she would know what would happen to him in his life. And I won't use the word, but that he would become the leader. He would become the person that would that would take them out of Egypt. Hmm. Why didn't anybody even suggest that? 
they're saying that, that the day I hear is not just momentary knowledge of this scene, but she, she watched it so she could see the, the large unfolding of this kid's life. Yes. That, 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 that's why I think the, the Masoret, whoever put the uh, Nukodot on the, uh, the Tamim on the, on the Torah trope, I want to think that the guy that put the Zakevka Gadol there said because she would know everything. Right. right. The guy who put the trap there, you mean God, I assume. <laughs> uh, wonderful. So uh, thank you for the five extra minutes today. I apologize if you had to get somewhere at 930. We'll call it a day. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.